0: So what I want to talk about this evening is calming the formations. Now, if English is not your first language, you might hear that title and think you're missing something. But please feel reassured that if English is your first language, you're equally puzzled about what I'm going to talk about. So hopefully it will become clear. So, in the hundreds of uh, discourses that hold the richness of the Buddhist teachings, there are two in particular that have most profoundly shaped people's practice of insight meditation and have been equally most influential in the development of mindfulness-based applications. Now these two discourses we have already begun to refer to. One is called the Metta Sutta that John has talked about, the teaching of boundless friendliness. And the other is, as we've already begun to speak about, the Satipatthana Sutta, Translated, sati is the word in Pali, the language in which the early discourses were recorded. Sati is often translated, most often translated as mindfulness. So the Satipatthana Sutta is the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four ways of establishing mindfulness. Now both of these discourses, the Metta Sutta and the Satipatthana, Both are equally concerned with transforming the heart-mind and equally concerned with ending suffering. And what the Metta Sutta, the Sutta of Boundless Friendliness, is describing is the radical attitudinal shift from aversion, hostility and fear to kindness, to befriending, to warmth. A shift that is said to be the necessary foundation for the development of all forms of meditative practice. And of course, that shift from aversion to befriending is clearly the attitudinal shift that is invited in mindfulness-based applications. The Metta Sutta is describing the development, the cultivation of our capacity to accommodate, our capacity to embrace whatever arises in our experience with warmth, with friendliness, with care, our thoughts, our emotions, our bodily experiences, our life experiences, without conditions. Now this quality of boundless friendliness that is described in the metta discourse is inextricably interwoven in the practice of mindfulness. In fact, there is one discourse where the Buddha says there is no higher mindfulness than metta. That there is no higher mindfulness than metta. Now, this second discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, that we've already been referring to, is a teaching that provides something of a roadmap, we might say, for the development of mindfulness. It describes the way we cultivate mindfulness in the body, in feelings, in mind, in everything that arises in consciousness. But the Satipatthana Sutta describes not only the roadmap for developing mindfulness, it equally describes the roadmap for the development of the insights, the understandings that can emerge within the framework of that contemplation, that mindfulness. So in this discourse it's very clear there is both the skill level, the development of mindfulness, but the skill level is pointed to as not being an end in itself, but rather that skill level of developing mindfulness is is actually a vehicle for the development of insight. And it is the insight which brings about the transformations. Now, there are many, many parallels between the Metta Sutta and the Satipatthana Sutta. Both share equally in this sense of direction towards liberating the heart, liberating the mind. Both are directed towards bringing about an end of the emotional and the psychological distress that can afflict our minds, our hearts, our lives. And both are dedicated very much towards a sense of cultivation, of bringing into being um, what the Buddha describes as an awakened heart and mind, free of affliction, free, free of estrangement, free of ill will and hostility, an awakened heart and mind that is embodied in a life of dignity and compassion and freedom. Now, the Sathipatthana Sutta actually begins and ends with what I think is a pretty awesome statement and promise, which says this is the direct path for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the path, for the realization of Nibbana, the awakened or liberated heart. It's quite a statement, I think. Now, both the teaching of metta, the boundless friendliness, and the teaching of sati, the ways of establishing mindfulness, are clearly forming the backbone Uh, of what we are doing here, practicing together here during this week. Now, this evening, there's actually so much within the Saripatthana Sutta, but this evening I actually just want to extract more or less one line from it and talk about it for the next hour. (laughs) But I just want to really focus upon one small section. Because this line in the Satipatthana Sutta, this beginning of the, in the Satipatthana Sutta, is the line that begins to set the stage for the development of mindfulness and insight. Now, the practice as it is offered or as it is described in the Satipatthana Sutta, we've already begun to talk about. To be mindful of body as body. And in the beginning of that contemplation of the body, it begins very much as we have begun here, with being mindful of the breathing process. To simply know the breathing process. However, it is the in breath, the out breath, whether it's a deep breath, whether it's a shallow breath to just be there without adding anything, without trying to control, without any ideas of how that breath should be. So it is put down as the very first step in mindfulness practice to know the breathing as the breathing. Because it is such a primary lesson that carries right over into the rest of this path to learn to be with all things just as they are not adding anything not taking anything away but there is also of course this mindfulness as it's described in the satipatthana sutta is not attitudinally neutral it talks of you know it's much more the encouragement to befriend the breath to be present with the breath uh, all of the kind of uh kind of clues are this not taking anything away not trying to control is the sense of standing near to standing near to being present within rather than distant unifying body mind and present moment and introducing this sense of curiosity Just to know the breathing, not conceptually, but experientially, from within the body. Now, the instruction, so the first instruction is to establish mindfulness within the breathing. Now, the second instruction goes on. It says, breathing in, breathing out, calming the formations. Calming the bodily formations. Now, this encouragement to calm the formations is actually an encouragement that runs through the entire path of insight meditation. You often hear this in so many of the discourses from the Buddha. Calm the formations. Calm the formations. Okay, so we're going to talk about what that might mean. So, what are the formations we are calming? First of all, just to acknowledge, this is an incredibly strange word. It's not one we use every day in English. What are the formations we are calming? Well, the formations that we are calming are not only in the body. The formations we are calming are, is that everything that is in a state of agitation, those are the formations we're calming. Everything that is in a state of agitation, distress, reactivity, aversion, tension, discontent, aversion, craving, despair, these are the formations we are calming. They are what is in a state of agitation. Now. There is much, actually, that can be agitated in our body, in our mind, in our lives. You might have got a sense of that here. So what is the job of mindfulness? Well, it's actually very developmental, the job of mindfulness. Look at what we've been doing here. First, we are mindful of the breathing. One breath at a time, one moment at a time. Now, you may have begun to get a sense that in doing this in a sustained way, it begins to slow down some of the processes of agitation. Begins to slow them down. We begin to be able, through that mindfulness, to attend to what is happening because it is slowing down. We're not always sort of in this retrospective looking. We are able to attend. So the second job of mindfulness is in that slowing down that comes through sustaining attention to begin to be able to see what is actually happening in our mind-body process. So you can see that, way, that the second job of mindfulness is actually to illuminate the moment. You're shining the light of attention, of mindfulness, both inwardly and outwardly. We see this happening in our own practice. So that rather than simply moving through the day in a kind of daze of agitation and bewilderment, we begin to be able to see and to know the mind-body process as it is. Now, this doesn't always feel initially like very good news. (laughs) We just need to acknowledge that. Because what we do begin to see is how much agitation there can be in our world. First of all, we might get a sense of that in the body. You know, the agitation in the body. you notice how much restlessness there can be, how much tension, how much contractedness? Not only in relationship to the unpleasant or painful experience, but even in relationship to the pleasant experience, we get agitated. You know, how do I keep this going? You know, this is a good sensation. I'd like more of those, you know, looking forward to the next one. Sometimes we begin to see the agitation in our bodies in the sense doors, particularly in the eyes. Have you noticed how agitated or hungry the eyes can be when the mind is agitated? You know that with the signs in the notice board become particularly compelling. You know, sometimes you see in retreats, you know, people standing before the notice board. this gaze of awe, as if there's something going to come to life, you know, something going to sort of be delivered, some sort of ag- entertainment. It's this sort of agitation of the eyes. We become very, we find a newfound fascination with everybody else's walking style. You know, with the kind of shoes people have, you know, with the writing on the tea boxes. We can almost feel the agitation driving us in the busyness of the body at times. In a situation here where we really have so little to do, we can find, if there's agitation, so much to do. So much to do. Sometimes we feel the agitation in the formations of the mind. We feel the compelling nature of many of our narratives, our memories, our plans that can flood the mind. We see the remarkable capacity of our minds to proliferate, to actually have something to say about everything. You know, we have that expression in English, being lost for words. Well, that hardly ever happens. (laughs) You know, we have something to say about everything. You know, the most innocuous things. I once talked to uh, someone on retreat who, you know, who mentioned that they were so tired of being encouraged to let go of their stories, you know, and let go of their thoughts. That they decided they were going to do their own thing and that they were going to spend the week thinking every single thought that it was possible to think, feeling pretty sure that by the end of the week they would have exhausted the stockpile, they would have run out of thoughts. Guess what? (laughs) Not happening. Not happening. We can see the agitation and the formations of preoccupation, of obsession. We see emotional formations of agitation. Despair, anxiety, aversion, discontent. And the more mindful we become, we start to see the agitation of self. Just the agitation of self this is why i mentioned mindfulness doesn't always feel like good news in the beginning when we look at our experience i think particularly in the first days of retreat we can feel like we're somehow simply a bundle of agitation and when it all gets too much we just go to sleep <laughs> you know we just check out it's it's like you know overdrive So, this is what actually we're asked to meet, with curiosity, with kindness. This is what we're invited to calm. Now, one thing I think is very important to understand, like calm, calm, we need to turn it into a verb. Calming. Because, like most significant words, certainly in Buddhist teaching, they come in verb forms. They are relational words. So, calm is not some state, not describing some kind of state achieved when we get rid of agitation. Calm is not described as a state, as apart and separate from agitation. You know, we're not in the business here of trying to sedate ourselves. Calming is a way of being with agitation. And this is a hugely significant turning point in mindfulness practice because this way of being with agitation, because I think we've all probably seen in ourselves and seen it plenty of times in clients and patients how prone we can be to meet agitation with agitation. How do I fix this? How do I control it? How do I get rid of it? Just as we're prone to meet discontent and disappointment and despair, And resistance and aversion just with more aversion. That feeling of, how again do I get rid of this? I hate feeling this way. Layering judgment upon aversion. So a lot of the art, as you know, that we're developing in mindfulness practice is about how to take away this second layer and look at the formations of agitation really just in the eye. To know distress as distress, to know suffering as suffering, and to know that much of this actually may be optional. It's a wonderful few lines, I think, in, I love in the Buddha's teaching where he says, The mind that obsesses becomes agitated, and the mind that is agitated is far from freedom. It goes on and says, the mind that doesn't obsess does not become agitated. And the mind that is not agitated is close to freedom. Now, the second part of this statement, that the mind that does not obsess, doesn't become agitated, is close to freedom. This is, in a way, really the teaching of mindfulness. Mindfulness about how to free the heart, how to free the mind from the grip of obsessions and agitation. But knowing how to do that is very much tied in with the first part of the statement of really understanding in our own experience how obsession leads to agitation. And how agitation carries with it this very felt sense of contractedness, of being imprisoned. Now, in life, in our minds, in our bodies, in our experience, of course, there's always going to be formations. You know, we're going to have thoughts, we're going to have mental states, we're going to have emotions, we're going to have a whole range of life experience. Now, none of this intrinsically leads to agitation or to suffering. So what the path of mindfulness is basically concerned with is understanding the formations that are agitated and that lead to further agitation, that then lead to anguish and torment and contractedness. So part of mindfulness, as I've already mentioned, is is learning how to slow the process down, to see clearly. And yet another of the definitions of sati, or mindfulness, And it is also very much part of metta, is actually learning how to protect the mind. Learning how to protect the heart. In some places, it's said that metta is a guardian of the heart, and that sati is also a guardian of the heart. And what it is being, there's a very big difference here between protection and defending what the heart and mind is being protected from is the grip of agitation and obsession. What we begin to see in our practice is that the perpetuation of agitation relies upon agitation being fed. Just as a fire relies upon fuel For the fire to stay alive. That without the fuel, the fire goes out. Now, I want to read you a story. Uh, It's not a story, this is actually a note. Um, I want to, first of all, just say I have this person's permission to read this note. You know, never fear that if you write us some very lengthy, <laughs> lengthy note, it's going to end up here in the front of the room as part of somebody's Dharma talk. But this is such a classic and universal note. I really felt that I wanted to ask that permission. Anyway, I knew something was wrong. When I saw a person standing on the porch of one of the residential buildings at a retreat center, naked, naked, this is not something you generally see in retreat centers. Well, soon enough, I got this note Dear teachers, so I was taking a walk. Oh, by the way, this is in California. This took place in California. So I was taking a walk on one of the paths. Think city girl, feeling proud about being adventurous. And all was peaceful until the woods. A big black spider, and here she blesses us with a diagram, (laughs) a big black spider glommed onto my sweatshirt. I began squealing, so much for noble silence, and then started running. I ditched the path and headed for the field to get out of the woods, Unfortunately, I thoroughly disturbed some roosting turkeys, and they started squawking, which scared me. Capital letters. I run back into the woods and onto the path and picked up the pace. Then it crossed my mind that I was sure to be a mountain lion's dinner. So I tried walking, saying to myself, be mindful, be mindful. But it was all too much, so I said, screw mindfulness. <laughs> Screw the mountain lions, and I took off at a high rate of speed, for me anyway, seeing as I only quit smoking four days ago. (laughs) My lungs weren't able to keep up with my legs. As I was cruising past the dead stumps of trees, homes of mountain lions, question mark, question mark, I spotted in passing the dreaded poison oak. I am now convinced, thus the nakedness on the porch of the reservoir. I am now convinced, since I was running, squealing, like an idiot, not paying attention, that I am covered in poison oak. I threw my clothes on the floor and washed my face and hands, but I am worried. I saw the laundry soap in the manager's office, but it didn't seem to be special poison oak soap. I didn't see anything poison oak related. I did notice you have a wonderful supply of Chinese herbs, sir. (laughs) Anyway, what do you recommend I do besides shutting up? (laughs) P.S. I woke up singing in my head, Thank God I'm a Country Boy by John Denver. (laughs) It was probably an omen from the universe. I'm sticking to paved open roads. P.S.S. Can poison oak get inside your body? <laughs> because as soon as I changed, I went and ate lunch. This is a very human story, isn't it? <laughs> it's a very human story. I mean, she she, actually had a good sense of humor when she wrote this note. But in the midst of it, she was very clear this wasn't funny at all. This was agitation. This was agitation. (coughs) The reason I shared that note with you is what is so clear in our own experience. Because that could be anybody's story, couldn't it? One form or another. What is so clear in our own experience is that what we feed will grow. It will thrive. It will become more solid with that feeding. This is as true of the skillful as it is of the unskillful. Confusion and anxiety will grow and become more solid through being fed. In reality, kindness and mindfulness equally grow and thrive, because they are fed. What we are learning in the practice is not to feed the agitations that lead to further agitations. What we are learning to do in the practice is not to feed the agitations that lead to distress, there are so many examples of this in our day. You know, you sit here in the meditation room and perhaps you've at times your attention has been drawn to the sound of the birds outside the window. It's a lovely sound. It's a lovely sound. But do you know what we can do with that? A lot. First of all, it can look a lot more interesting than the breath, doesn't it? I think I'll listen to the birds for a while. You know, that's much nicer than this breath that just goes in, out, in, out. And then you start listening to the birds, and guess what? You find the bird that has only three notes in its song. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet, tweet. After a while, you know, you sort of think, like, can't it just, you know, get a new note? <laughs> add something to its repertoire, you know, or perhaps you think, you know, next walking, you know, I'm out there, I'm going to find that bird, you know, I'm going to find that bird, I'm going to move its nest, you know. So what starts out as being so benign can, given that, given that a certain reactivity, certain vulnerability to reactivity becomes a nightmare. This can be true of pretty much anything in life. Other birds certainly never had the power to make us agitated. We can learn, and we do learn in our practice actually, to become increasingly sensitive to this process, to see what we are feeding, and to see the process of feeding is in itself a kind of agitation. It is a habit often at times. So what do we do if we come back to the sound of the birds? What does mindfulness mean in those moments? It means to know the sound as a sound. It's exactly the same art as we've been developing in terms of the breathing process. To know the breath as the breath. To know a thought as a thought. A sadness as a sadness. An anxiety as an anxiety. A plan as a plan. Just as it is, not feeding, not fueling, learning to be a guardian of our hearts. Learning with mindfulness to protect the well-being of our hearts. Now it sounds very easy and we know that it's not. Because what we really see is the tendency and the habit to proliferate, to build worlds... To build the world of the moment out of the building blocks of thought, emotion, and reaction is one of the primary formations that are agitated. So we start, as we started the practice, calming, calming, calming the proliferation, coming back to just this sound, coming back to just this breath, Coming back to just the sensation doesn't that take a remarkable dedication? If you notice how challenging that is to be, not to be drawn into the story, not to be drawn into building, to be able to come back just the sensation, just as sound as a sound. But we are protecting the mind, and in that moment we are changing the shape of our mind and heart from agitation to calming, based on insight, knowing what leads to distress, and knowing what leads to the end of distress. Now the word in Pali, which is the language that the discourses were written in, for formations, is sankharas. Now sankharas refers to one aspect, certainly, of sankharas, is that it refers to habitual or latent tendencies that shape our experience, shape our mind, and shape our reality on a moment-to-moment level. They are patterns of mind, or habits of mind, tendencies of mind, that are born of confusion and that through repetition become habits to the degree that they become woven into our sense of identity, our sense of self then we start to have the descriptions. We come to believe or to say, this is who I am. I am an anxious person, I'm an aversive person, I'm a hopeless person, I'm a confused person. (laughs) Now, in in developing this capacity to calm the formations, as we've been doing here, first we establish the anchor in our breath, in our body we establish in that anchor intentional attention. And we begin to learn how to sustain those intentions. So we are protecting the mind in those moments from being caught by those habitual or latent tendencies that arise. And with practice, we begin to know them. We begin to know them. There is a calming and not fueling, and there begins to be a lessening of identification with the habitual tendencies. Now, when you've looked at you, you know, if you reflect back over your experience today, your experience yesterday when you were awake enough to notice it, <laughs> you probably noticed. How many of our reactions are actually just all too familiar to us? You know, how many of our habit patterns are just all too familiar to us? You know, they need to be in control, they need to be perfect, you know. Um, you know, the tendency towards busyness, the tendency towards aversion. Now, these sankharas, or these habit patterns, are in- psychological and emotional inclinations, And when we look at our life, at the nature of our mind and body, there's a lot that's habitual, isn't there? There's sometimes a shocking amount that is habitual. I mean, how many new thoughts have you had today? You know, how many new responses have you had today? You know, how much is just kind of like, oh, you've been down that road before, you've been down that road before, had that reaction before, oh, yeah, I know this one. It's so familiar. So, you know, one response to seeing the repetitive nature of many of our inclinations is just as, oh, there I am again. A great saboteur of mindfulness, by the way. The word again. Hmm? What's one response? But another response is to foster this sense of curiosity. Rather than blaming or judging, fostering a sense of curiosity and fostering our capacity just to pause, to pause would some of those habit patterns arise and to ask ourselves, begin to explore the possibility of walking down another pathway. When we begin to calm the formations of all the stories that we tell about ourselves, about the world, about others, we begin actually really to get a sense of of the kind of core underlying habit patterns or formations that fuel our narratives, that fuel our stories. And this is so critical to begin to get that sense because just as mindfulness is not an end in itself, neither is calming. But rather, mindfulness and calming are the ground upon which we can begin to inquire, begin to investigate, and begin truly to understand for ourselves what causes distress and struggle, and what brings it to an end. Now, when the Buddha is a young man, and I think it's very important to get into this very human level of Siddhartha, when Siddhartha is a young man looked deeply into his own mind, He saw that the world of his mental and emotional activity pivoted around a few core themes or habit patterns. He saw that the agitation of his mind pivoted around a few, just a few core habit patterns. One was the power of craving, that formation, unquenchable desire, unanswerable desire. Uh, that core feeling of not enough, not having enough, not being enough, not getting enough, that manifested in his experience in an agitated life. To have, to keep, to get, to be better, to get more, to become more, to find something missing in himself. You know, I think there's something so timeless about this. You know, I remember, you know, some time ago I was I was in a supermarket and I was walking parallel lines to aisles to this mother with her young child and I could hear this little plaintive voice, you know, as it went as she went up and down the aisle saying, Mommy, I want this. I want this. I want this. And it just went on and on. I want this. I want this. And then about three aisles down, that little plaintive voice had turned into Mommy, I need it didn't even have a word at the end of it anymore. It was just, I need. We get a little more sophisticated as we get older. So, so the Buddha saw this, this power, this habit pattern, creates so much agitation of this feeling of insufficiency, of not enough, not being enough, not having enough. He saw, okay, another core habit pattern of hostility or aversion moving through his heart and mind, the waves of rejecting the present, manifesting in judgment and blame and fear, both towards what is present and what might be, the small and great moments of aversion that create that climate of discontent and unease and anxiety in our thoughts, in our lives, in our relationships. And he saw the core habit pattern of confusion or delusion, not actually just just not knowing what's going on. Wandering in a sort of daze of bewilderment in, in a world that felt chaotic, wondering what life is all about. You know, I think there's a kind of metaphor that's used. I mean, I never like to refer to people as types because I think there's there's no way that anybody's a particular type. But it describes, you know, three people going to a, a party and one is in the grip of... You know the craving, agitation, and they walk into a party and they look around and you know what's to eat, you know, and who do I want to talk to, and is the music good enough? You know, it's all about what I can get. They talk about another person in the grip of the formation of aversion walks into the same party. Oh, look at what they served up tonight, you know, and and just seeing all the people they don't want to talk to, and how fast can I get out of here? And another person in the grip of the core habit pattern of confusion or delusion just keeps going to the wrong party. <laughs> <laughs> sort of kind of puts it into a sort of a, a model that we might be able to relay, relate to. And the, the Buddha saw that these core formations, these core formations of agitation, have got very large families, they've got extended families. A lot of cousins, aunts, uncles, second cousins, you know, the whole business. Think about the formation of agitation of craving, that belief in insufficiency of not having enough, the sense of lack, how much strategizing comes out of that, to find the happiness, to find the achievements, to find the the becoming, the attainments, the approval, the acceptance, Things that we feel to be lacking within ourselves—the external externalization of happiness. Think of the extended ha- uh, family of the habit pattern of agitation, of aversion. You know, all of the the judgments, the comparing, the evaluations, the avoidance mechanisms, the busyness to get rid of, to fix, and think of the habit pattern, the family of of delusion the endless endeavor to to explain, to find answers, the endless kind of desire to find solutions. It's a little story about the aversion family, how busy, how agitated it makes us. There was a man so displeased by the sight of his own shadow and so displeased with his own footsteps that he determined to get rid of both. The method he hit upon was to run away from them, so he got up and ran. But every time he put his foot down, there was another step, while the shadow kept up with them without the slightest difficulty. He attributed his failure to the fact that he was not running fast enough, so he ran faster and faster without stopping until he finally dropped dead. (laughs) (coughs) He failed to realize that if he'd merely stepped into the shade, his shadow would vanish, and if he sta- sat down and, sto- and stayed still, there would be no more footsteps. Mm-hmm. The, the Buddha the Buddha saw in his own life what these, these three primary drivers of agitation, of craving, aversion and delusion led to an agitated life, a heart bound up in, in discontent and restlessness. And he also saw, Siddhartha also saw, when he looked within his own experience, that there was another, even another underlying layer or driver of agitation that in a way fueled all the other agitated formations, and that was the agitation of self, the agitation of I, being shaped moment by moment by what was being identified with. And what I think is the genius of the Buddha's teaching is that, you know, he's such a person who saw process or understand process. And, and what, the, what the Buddha really saw were these kind of co-dependent systems that fed upon each other to create agitation. He saw the codependency between all the agitation of craving and the identification with insufficiency, the inner belief in the sense of lack. He saw the codependency between all the agitation of aversion and hostility and the belief in the fearful self, the anxious self. And he saw the codependency between confusion and delusion and not even knowing what the self is anyway being just totally puzzled by that. It's a whole lot of agitation. Now, what I think is really important, of course, is not to accept this as some sort of ideology, but to actually look within our own experiences to see if these codependencies exist within our own experience. To actually see for ourselves if this is true, if this is true, then how do we unlock those codependencies. Because this is a lot of the work, not just of mindfulness, but a lot of the work of insight in the service of freedom is to unlock these codependencies. We might begin to see in ourselves that if we're to calm agitation, we need to calm the source of agitation. And this at times can feel like an impossible task. But we really need to remind ourselves that the size of the task is always only equal to the size of the moment. It's not bigger than that. That the size of the task is always just equal to the size of the moment. So what are the antidotes to some of these driving, these codependencies, these drivers of agitation? Well, one of them is calming as an antidote. And calming is a practice. It is an application of insight. It is learning not to fuel. It's learning to walk new pathways. What is the antidote to the formation of agitation, the agitation of craving? Well, it's an insufficiency. It's not answered by more craving. We probably know this for ourselves. There's restraint. There's learning to pause. But there is also begin to, beginning to cultivate, as we do in this practice and this path, a sense of contentment. Not a bovine contentment, but perhaps a genuine willing beginning to explore the possibility that we may actually have everything that we need in this moment. For sensitivity, for calm, for peace, for happiness. How many times do we actually really just see that radical rotation in our consciousness when we can be, feel so gripped by discontent? and we do step outside and we see the, the encouragement to do this in mindfulness practice, open our eyes. Allow ourselves to be touched by all that is around us. Allow ourselves to be touched by that which is still. Allow ourselves to really notice what is not agitated. Have you ever found yourself able to do that in the practice, that you can be sitting and you can just feel to be this bundle of buzz? And then you might remember, what is calm in this moment? Ah, where is there calmness within the body in this moment? We might feel so contracted and then, ah, I listen, truly listen. To feel that contractedness begin to expand. We might feel so despairing and then we can be, our hearts can be so gladdened by just the silhouette of the tree on the horizon. We learn to notice that which is well. This is as much a part of mindfulness practice as calming that which is unwell is actually notice that which is well. I mean, you see in all of meditation practice, what does it point us towards? To discovering inwardly generated happiness and peace. Discovering inwardly generated sensitivity, spaciousness, calm, well-being. It is the whole point of meditation practice is to liberate us from the idea that all of this is somehow dependent on getting something, achieving something, attaining something, beginning to taste the sweetness of inwardly generated well-being, calmness, contentment. And then actually that sense, when, the, when the belief in insufficiency drops away, so does the agitation of craving. We begin to learn how to meet the agitation of aversion with kindness rather than with more aversion. Ah, this too. This too, this is almost, if I would say that if mindfulness had a mantra, this would be it. This too, this too, that this too can be accommodated, this too can be embraced, this too can be softened, this too can come to calmness and stillness, even the most difficult waves of aversion, if they are met with kindness, with compassion, with understanding. What is the antidote to confusion, to delusion, and all the agitations that can come about? It's just really what we are doing here, beginning to see things as they actually are. The whole of the training, just beginning to see things as they actually are. Beginning to see the way in which our world is constructed moment to moment. It's not a mystery, it's not an accident, it's not random. The Buddha is so much into these codependency systems, you know he put it very simply, "When there is this, that arises. Yeah, it's pretty simple. you know? When there's craving, agitation arises. When there is calmness. Also, spaciousness arises. This the, it, this can all feel kind of like a huge task, but it's actually not because we're beginning. We you know we begin, We're kind of unlayering experience. We're unpacking experience, and part of that is actually beginning to see that the story of me is also a verb. Isn't that interesting? The story of me is also a it's a verb. It's a process. I don't have a self, there is selfing. And the selfing of the moment is very much being shaped by whatever is being identified with. If there's identification with the pain in the body, I become the sufferer. You know, if there's identification with a feeling of anxiety, I become fearful. You know, if there's identification with a wave of aversion, I become very angry and very, very rejecting. It's just a shaping process, moment to moment. Not quite always as solid as we thought it was. And we will get more into this as the retreat goes on. Coming back to the Satipatthana Sutta. Contemplating the body as the body, feeling as feeling, mind as mind. Calming the formations, meaning whatever arises with kindness. And these two two ingredients of understanding and kindness. They are really the key to calming the formations of agitation. I just want to end with just a couple of lines from the Metta Sutta. It says, radiating kindness over the entire world, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Sustaining this recollection is said to be the sublime abiding. If we just take just a couple of moments together quietly and then we'll go into a walking period.